morning. Uh, yeah, a brief word about Tim Keller. I mean, he, um, I think when I was in seminary, he's just, the, a lot of the guys in the seminary that I was with were there because of him. And I think that uh, when people look from the outside, maybe some of the things that draw their attention to, if you don't know Tim Keller, is a pastor in New York City, is probably his success. But more than his success, the thing I think that he he did that is a light forward is like he recognized that the gospel rightly put <laughs> confronted all of us was offensive to the right and to the left I felt like he he frustrated everybody <laughs> you know uh, and at the same time he he was so diligent and so convicted that what he showed was that God has preserved people everywhere. And I think a lot of the shock when he came into New York City was like, well, there's a bunch of people who want to hear the actual gospel here without it, you know, changed or watered down. He just faithfully did that. And God's message to his people is that he is always preserving his people and that the thing we do is we present the gospel, um, that the gospel is above partisan things, that it is a challenge... Uh, and a comfort to all of us. And that's the legacy I, I think of with Keller, and I'm so grateful for his ministry to the world and to me personally. So uh, for this sermon, we're doing our Acts series. Uh, we're in 19. I have to tell you something that Tech might not be super happy about. So uh, there is the full passage. I'm going to do about half, and the reason I'm doing half is about two days ago, like, this thing is just a beast. Is it possible... And uh, I went and looked up my, my pastor in college, preached on 19, and his sermon took 50 minutes. So buckle up. No, just kidding. So uh, <laughs> my answer is then to, I'm going to split it in half um, and do the first half and potentially the second half next time I'm with you guys. Um, yeah, so if it feels like uh, the, the passage we have picked out, we're only getting halfway through, there's a reason for that. I respect you and love you so much. I'm not going to keep you here for an hour. All right, it's a wild passage. It's, it's a bizarre one, and we need some time to break it down. But let's, let's read, let's know that this is the word of God. The word of God is here for our edification. The whole, all of it is a blessing to us that God gives it to us. The parts that we're excited about, the parts that we're confused about, it is all there for our edification to draw us towards Jesus. So with that faith, let's read together, starting in Acts 19. We are looking in Acts 19, starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. 
and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray together that God would bless the reading of this word. Father, uh, we thank you for your scriptures. We always come whole, uh, humbly before it, knowing that you intended us to hear it and you intended us to hear it today. Soften our hearts that we may hear what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Matthew Crawford is a great author. I love his stuff. Some of you have maybe read his book, Shop and Soulcraft. Uh, it's one of those like, hey, it's good to use things, do things with your hands books. Um, he was a, a think tank. He worked in a think tank, a political think tank for a while, got really bored with it and started a um, motorcycle repair shop. And the book is just kind of about that. He argues that that work he does with motorcycles is more intellectual than the think tank work he did. Do with that what you will. In a most recent book, he pointed out something that I thought was really interesting and worth sharing with you. Many of you have seen or remember the old Mickey Mouse shorts, like the first one, Steamboat Willie, but uh, you can think of like the band concert. These old uh, Mickey Mouse shorts, which I love and have shown to my kids, and they think they're riotously funny. The main idea in these shorts were pretty simple. You have Mickey, Donald, and Goofy. They have to do a fairly mundane task, usually, and the world conspires against them in accomplishing this task. So they try to have a public concert, and a tornado comes through, and they have to play during the concert. Or they try to bring a trailer up and down a mountain, and, you know, everything goes wrong. They try to patch up a boat, and the boat ends up sinking. Often the character's own flaws and vices create problems. They lose their temper. They're afraid. They can't do it. Frequently, even the material world, like, literally moves against them. They're trying to hammer a nail, and the nail is, you know, jumping out of the way, at which point they get angry, and then worse things happen. These shorts are funny because they communicate something about real life, which is work is hard, and frequently it feels like it's all against you, you know? Uh, that moment when every year I move the window units down to the basement, I am challenged uh, to use clean language the entirety of the day. When it feels like you're doing something like that, it's like everything seems to go wrong. You're trying to fix something, the screw falls and bounces under the refrigerator, and you're like, really? Under the refrigerator? Oh, that was the one screw that size that I had. Great, you know? And those shorts were funny because they, they, we saw Mickey, Donald, and Goofy try those things. We're like, I know what that's like. And you laugh out of recognition of those kinds of things. Yeah, that's what work feels like frequently. There was a uh, jump forward about a century, however, and there was a recent Mickey Mouse show called the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse that did something really different, and I think totally worse. <laughs> there would be a problem, say, like a ravine they couldn't cross, and they, to solve this problem, would pull out a remote upon which would be a selection of buttons. They would press the bridge button, a bridge would appear, and poof, their problem is solved. All problems can be solved with the remote and its many buttons. I'm not sure I have to point out the difference, but if you're raised watching the old Mickey Mouse shorts, you probably have a different expectation about what life is gonna be like. If you're raised on the new ones, you're probably just thinking my iPad will solve this. Mickey's agency in the old ones 
came out through his wrestling with a broken world and with a broken self, and he primarily expressed his agency through perseverance. In the new ones, Mickey expresses his agency by being a, ch a choice maker. He's a consumer. You press the choice on the menu that you want, and this solves your problems. This mentality isn't just making kids anxious, though I do think it's doing that. The shift expresses a good deal about how we currently view the world. We become someone by choosing. It doesn't really matter what the choice is, so long as we're choosing it. Ad agencies don't sell stuff, they sell identities that we can choose and try on. Even schools are built around this idea. I remember a teacher telling me, I don't know necessarily what's good, but I'm gonna teach you how to think so that if you happen to find the good thing, your thinking can help you with it. This was not very encouraging for me. In this climate, religion can fall prey to the same mentality. It isn't really important what you choose, just that you choose. As one character from the old show Firefly put it, I don't care what you believe, just believe in it. The act of belief itself is good, irregardless of the goal. You're trying to get across the ravine, you're trying to self-actualize and make yourself stand out. You have a remote with a lot of different options. And in this framework, spirituality is one of the ways and Jesus is just one of the options. So in this current moment, it could be tempting to view Jesus that way as just one among many, just one tool for religious self-fulfillment. It would make life a lot easier sometimes if you think that, right? He's a button on the remote, but there are others that are equally good and capable. And let's face it, the exclusivity of Christianity, Jesus is the way and truth and the life, is not very popular. Why not just live and let live? Well, simply put, if we're trying to follow the scriptures, if we're trying to follow Jesus, there's not really room for that kind of belief. And we're faced with, in passages like these, but the entirety of the Bible, we're faced with this message. Because Jesus is the true king of the spiritual world, he calls us to be his true followers. So that's what we're going to dive into today. So I just want to look at two things. One, Jesus is the true king. And two, what we do as true followers. So let's start with the true king. Now, as we jump in, I understand why we get uncomfortable with these types of passages. Many of us really deeply, myself included, want to appear reasonable and rational. Uh, especially if you are predisposed towards kind of an apologetic bent, and by that I mean you really like kind of defending the faith and thinking about Christianity and those kinds of things, it can be tempting to get passages like these and be like, ah, this one makes me feel like I'm in a cult. Can we move on? <laughs> but let me say a few things about this, okay? Firstly, atheism is not the dominant battle in the ancient world, or most of the modern world, in fact, including America. We could get into that later. The disenchanted, kind of materialistic, random worldview of the West, like it, it's just chance that you were here, and there it is, that's pretty new. When God says, I am, in the Old Testament, that is not a statement against atheism. He's not saying... I exist. Whether a god or gods would exist would not have been a question in the ancient world. Moses wasn't wondering, are there gods out there? He was wondering about the nature of God. The audience in the ancient world would have not been asking, do any spiritual beings exist? 
they would have said, is Jesus truly king over all spiritual forces? I have a friend who worked as a missionary in the Solomon Islands for a long time, and then his son worked in the same place. Uh, I know missionaries uh, aren't always looked highly on right now, but this guy and his son, very solid, not there to, you know, push American ideals or anything. They were gospel-focused people. Well, when my, my friend came into the Solomon Islands, the Solomon Islanders set him up in a house, and for the first few weeks of being there, he felt like, fighting all the time, people are getting sick all the time here, and finally he tells one of the Solomon Islanders, he's like, you know, I think there's something really spiritually dark about the house you guys put me in, no offense, I'm just saying, it's been a rough ride since we came in, and they go, oh yeah, we know, that house is full of spirits, anyone who comes in claiming any kind of religious authority, we put them in there, and if they can't tell, then we don't have to listen to them, <laughs> you passed the test, well done. So for Solomon Islanders and, and a lot of people in the world, all right, the question is not, are there spiritual forces, but what spiritual forces are dominant? Now, we can hear a story like that that I just told you and turn on our Western arrogance and say, oh, yeah, well, they aren't enlightened like us. We've gone beyond that. But firstly, I'd say this. If you buy the kind of prog progress narrative and believe that progress means that we are heading towards a kind of secular, materialistic worldview, I'd ask you to check your biases that end up setting us up, ending up like us as the end goal. Even the way that we think about third world, second world, first world seems to imply that everybody's on the same track that leads to ending up just like we are. I don't think that's true. And secondly, if the scriptures are right, the response from the Solomon Islanders is more correct than our own. The question, which spiritual authority is stronger, is the right question. So when we get to this passage, we need to know the Bible wasn't written to us directly. Luke didn't write this, and what I mean by that, hang with me, I'm not saying the Bible isn't for us, or that, but Luke did not sit down writing, I'm going to write to potentially uh, atheist post-enlightenment thinkers in the 21st century, he wrote to an audience that was asking, okay, but is Jesus strong? Is he the spiritual authority? He wrote to people who would have said, I have had spiritual experiences. I have seen things. I have experienced things directly that connect to the spiritual world. And I want to know, does God win? Is he powerful over these things? If you think about Exodus, what is God doing in Egypt? He's demonstrating that he is the true spiritual authority, that all of these other gods don't have it on him. So I want us to keep all of that in mind as we go into this passage. I want us to go in with a little humility about it. But let's look at it now. So Paul is traveling through, and what's just happened is Paul has wandered into Ephesus, and the days of the goddess of Ephesus are numbered when Paul shows up. Because the true God has entered the scene, and it is going to disrupt a lot. Paul's traveling through, and God begins working miracles through him. And I want to note this. Paul's been to a lot of places. We've been with him as he's been going through. God hasn't worked miracles through him in every place. There seems to be a different approach to different places. 
In some places, he just goes and he engages, you know, intellectually. There aren't any miracles worked. We don't see Paul going, why didn't God work any miracles in this place? He just kind of seems to accept that different places take different approaches. He has different modes of speaking in different places. Always focused on Jesus, death and resurrection, but there it is. But here, God is working through miracles. And I want to note this, because this is really important to this passage. Miracles are not magic. All right? Magic is about instrumentalization. If I say these words, then I have power over something. I use that something to get what I want. Miracles, on the other hand, are God working through someone to point to himself. So in the beginning, Paul comes through into this very spiritually charged environment. And he is, God is using, doing incredible miracles through Paul. People are being healed. It's happening right in front of people's faces. And they're like, whoa, this is a big deal. And apparently, some of them fold this idea into their kind of system of belief and think, well, Jesus is a name that has some power. Let's fold him in with the rest of our kind of religious pantheon and add him to the list of ways that we can have power over things. We actually have, uh, in Paris, we have a copy of a papyrus scroll that has a listing out of different incantations from early on. And one of these is called the Mithras Liturgy, and it goes like this. I adjure you by the God of the Hebrews, Jesus, Jabba, Jay, Abraoth, Ai, and it just starts listing all these names. So this would have been their understanding, is I list all these names because maybe one of them will work in this kind of spiritually charged environment. And they do this. So these uh, exorcists take this name and they use the name of Jesus in this powerful situation and the demon strikes them down through the man who is possessed. Now, I want to note a few things about these traveling exorcists. One, they aren't actually using the name of Jesus. Two, they are actually going after dark powers. They've correctly identified there's something spiritually dark about this place. We've got to fix it. And three, you could say they're actually trying to do something good. So what's the big deal? Why does this backfire so horrendously? Well, the problem is very simple. And it's one that we are tempted with routinely. We need to hear it often. The problem is that they're trying to use Jesus and not submit to him. They are trying to use Jesus and not submit to him. When they list off Jesus' name amongst many, they're saying that he is just one among many. He is one of the options on the remote. But the evil spirits rise up, beat them down, and then fear falls on everyone. Why? Didn't the name of Jesus not work? In this situation, why would all this fear? No, fear fell on them because they saw, oh man, this spiritual authority that Paul is talking about suffers no rivals. Jesus is the one and only one. This is what causes them fear. We can be tempted in some ways to agree with the exorcists, I think. In the current moment, there are a lot of churches that would say that Jesus is just one way among many. The institutions agree, argue that it doesn't really matter how you self-actualize or find fulfillment or those kinds of things, but we'll respect the process and try to help you. Spirituality is good. It can be found in lots of places, so we'll respect it all. 
Being a religious person is generally a good thing to do, so just do that. I notice that if we fall into that line of thinking, Jesus, uh, the empathizer, gets a very big play, which is good, but Jesus, the Lord in sacrifice for sins, seems to be wiped out. Drawn to passages like Jesus with the woman at the well, which is great, but not drawn to moments where Jesus says, and sin no more, which he does in almost every interaction. So it's an approach that while um, a lot of churches that have espoused this approach have had declining attendance over the last several years, it's still really popular in the public sphere, a kind of spiritual but not religious approach. And I think this is primarily because it's so compatible with whatever your preferences are. Basically, if you could picture a Peloton instructor saying it, that's the kind of religion I'm talking about. Um, vague and affirming, and, but about helping you accomplish your goals. Let me make the choice that self-actualizes me. Well, so that's one way that people kind of instrumentalize or use Jesus. The other way, which I've hammered quite a bit, and so I'm not going to get into too much, but you just see Jesus used for political power quite often. It's the kind of faith that leads people to teach charge the White House while saying the name of Jesus. Jesus is powerful, but the priorities aren't Christ's priorities, and the approach is not Christ's approach. Jesus comes to confront the spiritual, dark spiritual forces of the world and our sinfulness through suffering, service, and humility, not through force and pride. Well, Jesus himself has a rebuke to this moment, so I'll let him do the talking. This is something Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find, those who find it are few. Not everyone who says to me, pay attention to this, this is what Jesus is saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That passage always bothered me. But here's an example of it right here. The exorcists are using Jesus' name, trying to do good things, but they don't know Jesus because they don't know him as king. This may sound hard to hear, but it really is how Jesus presents himself, and it's how the scriptures present Jesus. Jesus is king. Gospel literally means the good news announcing a new kingdom. This is the good news. The reason Paul doesn't just sit back and say, well, we'll just let people do what they want to do, is because the good news is all these spiritually dark forces and all this confusion. God has stepped into it and created a light in this and I'm coming, this is what Paul is saying, I'm coming to tell you the good news, that you're searching, here is the answer. It's Jesus, he is the king. So I harp on this a lot, but Jesus is just not a means to becoming your best self now, or to financial flourishing, or political takeover. He's not one way to get self-perfection, or any of that stuff. He is the way and the end. The goal is union with God that we experience through union with Christ. Saying that it is about the journey, 
It's just about the journey and not the end. Sounds like something a very wealthy, comfortable, and consumer-based country would come up with. Yeah, easy for you to say. You have central air conditioning, consistent meals, good doctors, and free time to bodybuild. Jesus is not a spiritual power among many. He's the king. So let's see what happens here as his true kingship is announced, as we see what the true followers do. So word of this spreads. Look with me on uh, verse 18. Well, let's do 17. Start with 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. All right, so now the name is getting some real billing. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is interesting. These people who are bringing their kind of religious books are not converting. They have already converted. They are Christians. Who seeing this display suddenly go, oh man, I think I need to be living differently in light of the true king of Jesus. After this, it's laid bare. Jesus will tolerate no rivals because the rivals aren't good. They want dominance over people and destruction. They're not for people's good. Jesus is. He will suffer no rivals. And what's interesting here is we're literally about to have a revival, and it doesn't start from a four-step plan. It doesn't start with, like, this big overarching vision. It literally starts with personal repentance. That's it. It starts with personal repentance. And I don't think they're doing it in a showy way. I don't think, like, I hope everybody sees me do this. I think they're scared. <laughs> they're scared. They're like, oh, man, this God I serve is way bigger. I need to clean out my closet. This is why Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. I owe this to him. He says, most of us have these things in our closet that we've hidden away from Jesus in our community. But Jesus the King demands our lives and our all. If Jesus were one way among many, we could keep those things hidden away. But the people in this account burn their old religious books and practices, and it tells us how much it's worth. The overall value, there's debates, but it's substantial. It's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. It's yearly wages. They could have sold them. They could have given them to the poor. There's something bigger going on here. True wisdom is going to look a little differently than kind of the moderation of the world. Clearly, Paul did not come in and say, I have good news. God has come in the form of a man named Jesus to unite us with himself. And you know what? You can use it if you want. No biggie. As long as it makes you happy. Clearly didn't say that. Or they're not burning these books. Paul comes in proclaiming the true king and the people owe him their allegiance and the personal repentance of these people makes serious, serious waves. They were able to affect the world around them just by beginning by repenting themselves. They're not doing these things to be seen by people. They're doing them before God. But people notice. A long time ago, uh, now about 10 years ago, I had a student. I was walking with him once, and um, 
the student said, uh, Mr. Barber, I want to tell you something that I haven't told anybody. He said, uh, I, I think of my life like I have the, the, the yard, the front yard everybody sees. I have the front deck that sometimes people come up and sit with me. Inside my house, there's, you know, the main room and less, fewer people come in the main room, but I let people in there. But in the back of the house, there's a closet, and in the closet is a black box, and I don't open that black box for anybody. And I want to open the black box. Jesus wants us to bring out the black box. And that would be terrifying if it weren't for one thing. Jesus is really, really good. Jesus is very, very good. He longs to forgive and heal. It is every part of his being aches to forgive and heal. The black box is the thing that dominates us. Satan loves playing with it, saying like, hey, yeah, but you're really a failure. Jesus longs to get in there and forgive and heal. If you have something immediately coming up as I'm saying this, I'd encourage you to find someone who loves Jesus, who points to him, and take out the black box. Begin processing it before a king who loves you and longs to do this. So this passage leaves us with a tough call. It, the tough call is the one-wayness of Jesus and the call to repentance. I want to say a couple of last things. Some of you may still have some tough questions about the exclusivity of Christianity, this one-wayness of Jesus. I, there's no way I can get to it all today. But I know some of the common questions. You know, what about, what about people who've never heard the gospel in other places? What about people who are very sincerely religious in other places? I want to say this. I, I think that uh, a lot of those questions boil down to trust in the character of God. I think there are places in Christian theology wherein trust is more important than systemization. What I mean is, what I don't want to give you this morning is, here's a system. What I want to present you with is the person of Jesus who is good. So here's what I know based on the character of God as presented in the scriptures. God is just, holy God, who deeply, actually, really desires to be with his people. God has overcome every hurdle to that end. Jesus has come and died, experienced hell on a Roman cross to be with us. I don't know how things will shake out in the final calculus, but I do know that when we die and we see what God decisions God has made, we will rejoice. And not begrudgingly, we will wholeheartedly rejoice at what this good God has done. That's true. God is not playing a technicalities game. He's a good God who loves his people, who loves his creation, whose every fiber of his being is moving towards it. And we can rest in that God. The second thing I would say that I know for sure, based on the scriptures, is that it's through Jesus that things are made right. Submission to the king is the way forward. There are a lot of public examples of church failure right now. Uh, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and if you've been paying any attention the last month or so, some really dark things about abuse in the Southern Baptist Church and particularly their leadership, how they've covered it up, has come out. 
They were doing good things, the leadership. They were using Jesus' name. But clearly, at some point, some of those guys forgot that it starts with personal repentance. That you take the black box out of the closet. If Jesus is king, he starts by being king of each one of us. The way we stay away from deep hypocritical failures as a church, the way we testify to Jesus as king is all the same. We repent before a good and loving God. And I want to end on this. I've said it before, but I, I want to end on it. If, if, this, if Jesus was not good, this is bad news. <laughs> Take out your darkest, hardest stuff before someone who does not love you. That is bad news. But the entire arc of the story is so that when you go, yeah, but can I trust Jesus? There he is bleeding on the cross, separated from God for you to say, yes, you can trust me with this. There is no more evidence that Jesus could give us than the evidence he has given us, that he is a loving, holy God who loves his people, who is faithful who can be trusted with our darkest, hardest things. He longs to do it. And that's what it looks like to be a true follower of the king, is to slowly, with faith, repent. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are good. We know that there are hard things you have to say, but these hard things lead to good things. I can think of so many people that I know who have brought that black box out before you who live different lives because of it, who have experienced your grace and your goodness, who now minister to other people who suffer as they have suffered. Father, all of us in here are stewards of tough things, and you have called us to lay them before your feet to follow you. We thank you that you are not just king, but you are gentle and lowly in heart. That you say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me all whose closets are overflowing and I will give you rest. Father, we eagerly desire that rest. Help us to know you as king. In Jesus' name, amen.